0: Before I begin with the message, let me make an announcement about some resources. Um, Asked to bring, uh, since not everything could be made available here and some of it has run out, a catalog of resources that the little ministry at our church makes available. And so I brought, I don't know how many of these. And there'll be two boxes of it, and I'll just put them right here. Those are free. You can take that and see whether any of the resources are helpful to you, tapes and videos and books and pamphlets and things like that. And uh, if things are harder to get here in in Australia than uh, in America, we have everything available there and you can use email to order things and write to us. So please be aware of that. And then if you want to get on the mailing list to just be kept up to date with what's available, I'll put this here too, where you can just sign up, we send out things, and our policy is not to try to make any money, because if if you don't have any, we'll just give you whatever's in that catalog. So it's kind of a pay what you can, and if you can't, we'll give it to you and trust other people to cover for you. I think those are the only things I wanted to announce.
1: Let me try to rehearse
0: where we were yesterday, and then connect with the questions that I said I would raise tonight. I said that the creeds, the Reformation creeds, all say that the faith which alone justifies never remains alone, but is always accompanied by good works. And I quoted the Westminster Confession and knowing I should have quote from the 39 articles. So I went back and found them, and now I will do that, so that you hear from the horse's mouth what truth is, and it's the same as the truth in all the other confessions, but I'll read it here under
1: under uh, paragraph, or whatever you call them, 12. What Articles. Articles of good works, albeit
0: that good works which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily, key words. Necessarily of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. That's what I tried to say. That there is something about authentic, saving faith that necessarily causes good works to spring out so that uh, judgment can be according to works or your standing in Christ can be adequately declared by your works infallibly because there is a necessary connection between whether you are born again and thus have faith and your transformed life, as imperfect as it is. Then the question I raised was, um, why is this so? Why is there this necessary connection between justifying faith and sanctification, or good works, or a life of holiness and love and ministerial sacrificial faithfulness? And the answer I gave was that there's something about the nature of faith. They're not just corollaries that incidentally always happen together, but there is something about the faith which produces that change of life. Galatians 5, 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. Faith somehow works itself out through love. We haven't probed that very deeply yet, and the rest of Tonight and tomorrow are an effort to do that in real practical ways. The next question I asked was, well then, what is it about faith? If there is something about faith that works itself out in love or good works or holiness, what is it? And I suggested two things. One, it's the future orientation of justifying faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, future orientation, and the evidence of things not seen. Abraham in Romans 4 is given as the paradigm of justifying faith, and his faith was in promises. The second feature I gave was that faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. It's these two things I'm, I'm arguing, and I'm going to try to flesh out now tonight, the future orientation of faith and the affectional dimension of faith, a being satisfied, that make it inevitable that this faith produces love or the whole range of good works. In a nutshell just to let you know where I'm going, the reason that is so is because, take the future orientation of faith. The major obstacles to love are fear and greed. That is, if you're presented with a possibility of some painful or difficult way of laying your life down for somebody... Either the negative motivation of being afraid to do that, that you will lose measures of happiness, or you will lose your life, or you'll lose your money, or you'll lose your reputation, or you'll lose your standing or something, or the positive motive that you really are greedy to be maximally materially comfortable, that will be gone, keep you from loving. Faith in future grace The future orientation of faith says to fear, no, that's not true that I will lose, because I have many promises of God that it is more blessed to love than to live in luxury. And it says no to greed that, no, it's not true that if I stay at home tonight in my comfortable living room watching television instead of going to the need that I will be better off and happier. That's not true. There are many promises of future grace that show me the opposite and therefore I will believe those promises and I will defeat fear and I'll defeat greed and become therefore a loving person. And the same thing is true with the affectional dimension of faith that it is a being satisfied with all that God promises to be for us. The only way that sin, which is the opposite of love, has any power over us is by the promises it makes that we will become happier if we do sin. Nobody does sin out of duty. The only motives for sin are pleasure. Pleasure of power, pleasure of illicit sex, pleasure of prestige, whole array of pleasures. And faith, biblical faith, is a reaching out to all that God is for us in Christ and a being satisfied with that. So that the root of all these competing pleasures is severed by that superior satisfaction. So for those two reasons, faith inevitably produces a new lifestyle. If you leave faith at the intellectual level, you will never be able to explain the twelfth article of the thirty-nine articles or the... Westminster Confession, or Galatians 5, 6, and many other parts of Scripture. Now, here are the questions I re- That's all rehearsal. Here are the questions I said I would raise tonight, and let me go through them one at a time, and then take some texts of Scripture that practically demonstrate how faith yields love. What's the role of the Holy Spirit in this? I haven't mentioned Him. Much And in Reformation teaching, he has been historically made the main producer of the fruit of love without reference to how faith produces love. Galatians 5.22. Let's just stay with Galatians. And I'll, let me show you three texts in Galatians that you can keep in your mind to put faith and the Holy Spirit and love Together, chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. So it's manifest on the face of the text that the agent in us by which we are enabled to love is the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 6, we've already quoted, but becomes very crucial now in relating the Spirit to love and faith. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love or working itself out through love. So now you have the Holy Spirit, 522, producing love, and you have faith working itself out in love, 5.6. What's the link? How do they work? What's the interrelationship of the work of the Spirit and the work of faith in the production of a life of love, which is the goal of all Christianity, I believe. And the answer is in chapter 3, verse 5. In chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, it says, let me see. I don't know if I have that one in my head so well. Let me get it with you here. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Yes, there it is. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law, what's the answer to that? No. Or by, now they've got this phrase, hearing of faith. And the answer to that is yes. So here you have the link between the Spirit and faith. And these miracle-working power that's described in the fruits of the Spirit, at least, there may be more to it, but at least that, in chapter 522. So here's my effort to put it together. If you ask me, where does the Holy Spirit come in? I would say, faith is that instrument along which the Holy Spirit moves and comes powerfully into the life of a believer, overcoming fear, overcoming greed, defeating sin, and producing love. The Holy Spirit does not produce his fruit apart from faith's hearing and believing promises. This is not a magical thing separated from faith which embraces word. Now, therein lies, in my judgment, a weakness of at least some Reformation explication of how faith produces works. It skips this link of conscious embracing of promises and jumps over that to the Holy Spirit. So you read Calvin on how it is that um, justifying faith is always accompanied by. Good works. And he jumps and simply says, if you have faith, you have the Holy Spirit. Jump. The Holy Spirit always produces love. End of exposition. All that's true. But it does not help me psychologically know what to do in order to become a loving person. Do I just then wait? Do I, I say, okay, I'm a Christian. Now, Spirit, do something. Make me love. Wait, and that's not right. According to Galatians 3, 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by, as though there's something by which he does it. He's not just doing it. He's doing it by something. And he rules out works, and he says, and then he doesn't just say faith. He says, hearing of faith, which I take to mean Gospel promises are made and faith, future faith, reaches out. That is a future orientation of faith reaches out and is embracing, resting in and being satisfied by the promises that God has made in the gospel and in his word. And in doing that, the powers of unlove are broken. Now. There's something really, really important here about the way the Holy Spirit works. You know the Holy Spirit is the humble member of the Trinity in the sense that he is utterly self-effacing. His ministry, as J.I. Packer in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, drives home again and again, simply from the Gospel of John, his ministry is to glorify the Lord Jesus. How does the Holy Spirit glorify the Lord Jesus in enabling us to produce works of love? He does it by staying underground and insisting that the means by which we move toward love is faith in all that God is for us in Jesus. And just zap you and make you a loving person. And you would just wake up and you're suddenly loving. And you hadn't thought about Jesus. You hadn't thought about promises. You hadn't exercised faith. You're just loving. And Jesus would not get glory if that happened. Jesus gets more glory in your becoming a loving person if the means by which you become a loving person is by becoming so satisfied in all that God is for you in Jesus that now you are consciously freed from the alternatives to love. So there's something very profound here about how the Holy Spirit chooses to go underground, as it were, disappear beneath promises, disappear beneath faith and say, I'm down here and I'm enabling the whole thing. You couldn't make one millimeter of a move of faith or love without me. But I want your conscious focus to be on the promises of the Lord Jesus. I want you to read His Word. I don't want you to wait just for me. I want you to read His Word and get your heart so satisfied with all the gospel promises that Jesus has made and bought. That when you succeed in being so satisfied in Him that you break the power of the satisfying promises of sin, He gets the credit, not the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit chooses to do. We know He's doing it. We will praise Him. I sing songs of praise to the Holy Spirit. I pray to the Spirit. I thank the Spirit. He's God. But His way of working is to really get us onto Jesus. So that's my answer to the first question. please write down your questions and and ask them at the end if, if anything is perplexing or you think it's biblically out of whack here. Here's my second question. What's the role of gratitude? The origin of that book, Future Grace, in large measure was this conflict over the role of gratitude as I heard Christian leaders explaining it, including some that are my heroes. Let me try some really wild statements on you. Nowhere in the Bible that I have been able to find, you correct me if you can, and I will, in the second edition of the book, fix it. Nowhere in the Bible is gratitude connected explicitly with obedience.
1: Nevertheless, Almost everybody
0: in evangelicalism that I hear talk says the primary motive for obedience is gratitude. And you can't find that in the Bible. Period. Now, that's a weighty contention. I, I spent years deciding whether to go to print with that and asked many people to challenge me on that. The key word is explicit because I hear people saying, well, but what about... This word on gratitude, I said, but there's no explicit connection with obedience. Go on about this word, but there's no explicit. It's a theological construct that is so fixed in our brains that we see it where it ain't. Unless you see something I don't see, which you're welcome to point out to me later. For example, Christian obedience is called a work of faith, never called a work of gratitude. We find expressions like live by faith, walk by faith, never live by gratitude, walk by gratitude. We find faith working through love, never gratitude working through love. We find sanctification is by faith in the truth, we never find sanctification is by gratitude. We find the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, but never from sincere gratitude. We find Faith without works is dead, not gratitude without works is dead. We find Jesus deals with the disciples' hesitancy to seek the kingdom first because they were worried about food and clothing when he says, O men of little gratitude. Is that what he said? Not what he said. He said, O men of little faith. Faith in future grace, faith in future grace, not gratitude is the source of radical, risk-taking, kingdom-seeking obedience in the Bible. Now, why is is this important to me? And I think it should be to you. I'm going to say something positive about gratitude a moment, because it's an absolutely essential affection if you're a Christian, and you're not one if you don't have gratitude. But here are three reasons that I have great concern about the way evangelicals talk about the source of obedience and gratitude. Um, Number one, it very easily slips into, and I've heard it, I've seen it in hymnology, and I've heard it in Sunday school lessons, and I've heard it from very articulate Christian spokesmen, it slips into a debtor's ethic, which talks in terms of paying God back, even though we can't. You should try. How much has he done for me? Gave, he gave his life for me. What have I given for him? Now, you can't pay God back, period, ever, not one little bit. And the reason is because every effort at virtue that you make, every effort to love, every effort to believe, every effort to worship, is a new gift of grace. And you just go further into debt. That's first reason. You cannot pay God back at all because every little effort at doing a right or good thing toward people or God is another work of sovereign grace that puts you further in debt, not helps get you out of debt by payback. Here's the second reason. Um, if we could succeed in paying God back a little bit, to that degree... Grace would no longer be grace. It would be a business transaction. The atonement did not establish an amortization schedule for a lifelong of paybacks called obedience. It didn't. It can't. Grace would not be grace if you could pay any of it back. And the third reason is that the whole talk about gratitude being the ground of obedience or the motive of obedience directs our attention backward instead of forward where true power exists to release obedience. In other words, if I'm right in everything I've said up to this point, that it's faith in future grace that is the power to sever the root of sin, the whole talk about getting your strength from gratitude sets you looking in the other direction, namely backward, which I think uh, lames the church. I think the church is lame because they have not discovered the glory of faith in future grace. You can't run your car on gratitude for yesterday's gas. That's the phrase that helps me most. You cannot run your car on on gratitude for yesterday's gas. And all of our cars run out of gas at the end of the day. You need new grace for tomorrow's obedience, not gratitude for yesterday's grace. You can't run the car on gratitude for yesterday's grace. You wind up a legalist if you do that. you got to have new grace for tomorrow's new obedience, and whether you believe that grace is going to be there for you tomorrow is where you get your power to love. If you don't believe there'll be grace for you tomorrow in the hard, challenging ways of love, You will either muster your strength to do it and become a legalist, or you'll despair and drop out of the ministry. And neither is a very good alternative. I'll give you a very concrete illustration of where I got all riled up about this two years ago. I won't tell you the name of the person. You'd everybody in this room would know the name of the spokesman. But I was on a speaking schedule with this person, and I heard him give a talk, articulated the, the debtor's ethic perfectly, and I thought florably, and uh, I was scheduled to speak the next morning. I stayed up all night wrote a new message. And uh, I got up, and the main thing I was responding to was an illustration that went like this. Powerful illustration. I love it. I used it in in a book. In the Second World War, some of you have read this. I think it's recorded in Bridge Over the River Kwai. Uh, In the Second World War, there was a concentration camp situation and the Japanese were holding Americans, and there were 20 Americans, and they did menial, hard labor, and at the end of the day, they'd come in, put their shovels up against the wall, and uh, they'd count the shovels, and if they were all there, they'd go back to their barracks. And one day, they put the shovels up against the wall, and the um, Japanese guard counted them, one, two, three, four, five, and got 19 shovels and turned around, infuriated at these 20 Americans and held his gun up and said, I'm going to shoot five of you dead if the delinquent person who broke or lost his shovel doesn't step forward right now. At about five seconds, a 19 year old boy soldier steps forward, he takes him inside, shoots him dead. And then before he dismisses them, he counts the shovels again just to make sure that there's not another one missing, and there's 20.
1: He miscounted. This 19-year-old boy gave his life to save his friend.
0: And this speaker said it was an illustration of the gratitude ethic. Jesus had done so much for him,
1: and now out of gratitude he would do it for the others. Um, As I sat there, I thought to myself "No." Biblically, we'll get
0: to these texts where I get this in a moment. If I were that 19-year-old boy, no doubt there might flash through my mind quickly the cross and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. But what would happen in my mind, I hope, I pray, is that I would think of Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him freely give us all things, including eternal life? I've got nothing to lose, everything to gain. I'm going to step forward because the cross purchased my future. And to die is gain. That's faith in future grace. To die is gain. And with that in mind, I step forward. Take my life. And I, I was lying in my bed last night, just thinking about this, thinking that if the soul, if if this guard had given him a chance to say anything, what would he say? Because he doesn't want to lie. See, he doesn't want to say I stole the shovel. He doesn't want the last act to be a lie. It would just I think he would say it would be an honor, sir, to die for these men that to go to be with Jesus. I think that's what he ought to say. It would be an honor, sir. Well, it may, I don't know whether this sounds like the big deal to you that it is to me that to turn from looking backward to the cross where Christ died to looking forward to what He died for But to me, that's the difference between a life of radical, sacrificial love and a life of duty-bound, legalistic striving. Because if grace isn't coming to me in five minutes and in 50 years and in 5,000 years and I try to do the Christian life in the future on the basis of something that I experienced or that God did in the past, I'm living on my own that will be defeat. So if you ask me, what's the glory of the cross? It's Romans 8.32. That is my favorite verse in the Bible. He who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all. That's past grace. That's bygone grace. It is absolutely and gloriously foundation of and purchasing of everything in my future. Because the rest of the verse says, if he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? And the whole point in the flow of thought in Romans 8.30 is if God is for us, who can be against us? And moves right on into peril and sword and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You stare your future right in the face and if it's a sword, if it's nakedness, if it's peril, it doesn't matter. Because that cross bought this future. And you can trust this future grace because of that security. The function of looking back is for the assurance of looking forward. That's the reason to look back to the cross. Not to be fixed there as though faith were a past-oriented thing. That's the platform on which we stand in order to look confidently into the face of all the threats of the future and keep on loving and keep on sacrificing and keep on serving. Well, let me move finally then to illustrate some uh, from some texts how the, the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, shows love to come from faith in future graces. Before I jump to Hebrews, let me take you to Matthew 5. you you want to open your Bibles, I'll just show you. These are samples. I, I could do this in dozens of texts, what I'm going to do right now with three or four. But we'll only have time for a few. Matthew 5. I did my dissertation at the University of Munich on this text. Hardly understood it in those days, I think, compared to what I understand now and all the academic gobbledygook that I had to deal with in a German university which fills up so many of those pages that five of you poor people bought today, maybe, I'm not sure that the book, the dissertation exists, but you know, doctoral dissertations are not <laughs> stimulating reading in the world. There may be a, a tenth of the book that's uh, something I'd want to hold on to today. Now, Not that I deny anything in it, it's just that you got to deal with so much I'm tempted to use a bad word here. Junk. Uh, the price of scholarship. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, this is Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now let's just pause and ask, where does this come from? Loving your enemies is a very unnatural way to live. Goes against almost everything in human nature. We hate our enemies. We want to get the last word. We want to put them down. We want to show that we're right. We want to get them in their place. And love and prayer for them, compassion, suffering and sacrifice for them. No way. That is not a human thing to do. So where does it happen? Where does it come from? Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. Um, Keep in mind that verse 44 said, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. right. Now let's go to chapter 5 and read verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. This is the same situation, okay? Love those who persecute you in 544. And here you are blessed if you are reviled and persecuted and utter all kinds of evil against against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when I put those two texts together and ask, which is harder, to pray for your enemy or to rejoice and be glad when you are reviled and persecuted? I think it's much harder to rejoice than to pray. I can dutifully pray that my enemy would get saved or things would go well for them and they would meet God. I could do that. But to be happy. Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount puts it even more strongly. It says, Be glad and leap for joy when you are persecuted. And the word is like a lamb coming out of the Now that's weird. Where does it come from? Now we have an answer in this text. We have an answer. Rejoice and be glad. Why? You tell me.
1: What's the text say? That's future grace, folks. Do you believe that? He
0: says, The reason you can rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted and reviled is because great is your reward in heaven. That's what the boy, the 19-year-old boy, thought, I think, or should have thought. That when he stepped forward, among all the swirling Christian truth he'd been taught as a child, should rise, among other thoughts, a decisive thought Jesus said, it's blessed to do this sort of thing. I can be happy at this moment in laying down my life for this persecutor because great is my reward in five minutes. Jesus. The power of
1: faith in future grace is awesome to produce love. That's
0: an illustration from Jesus. I could take you to Luke 14, 12-14, where He says to take into your home the lame and those who can't pay you back. Why? You will be paid back at the resurrection of the just. Faith in future grace. I could take you to Luke 12, 32, and show you that you should sell your possessions and give alms. Why? Why? Because thus you provide for yourself purses that do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fade. Future grace. But I'm not going to take you there. I'm going to take you to Hebrews as we draw this to a close. Hebrews, I want to show you a train of thought in the book of Hebrews that gripped me some years ago and gave me tremendous confidence in preaching these things. I mean, I just have no doubt that I could be shown wrong. No, that didn't sound right, did it? I have no doubt that I cannot be shown wrong. That faith in future grace is a dynamite power to produce love. And after I show you these three or four texts in Hebrews, I just hope it's so plain that you will say, goodness, that's just as obvious as day as long. How can it be controversial even? So let's start in the middle, then jump backwards and then jump forward. The one text I already quoted is chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then the whole chapter 11 describes people who were doing things by faith. A lot of different things they were doing, working. David's last point, faith works. There's a bunch of workers here in Hebrews 11. By faith, by faith, by faith. And what is faith? The assurance of things hoped hoped for. So by the assurance of things hoped for, they were working. Now look at verse 6, just to spell out a little further the nature of faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to Him must believe that He exists. That's the first thing you have to believe. And the second thing is that He rewards those who seek Him. That's future grace. That's the assurance of things hoped for. And the reward is fundamentally God. All that God is for us in Jesus is the reward that we must believe in if we have faith to come to God. So all that, those two verses, verse 1 and verse 6, just to set up the definition of faith in the book of Hebrews. Now let's go back to chapter 10, 32. I love these people. Oh, I love this paragraph. This is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened... You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And one of those lines in that song we sang, I wish I could remember the exact wording, but it was, in our sufferings we show the glories of our Christ. Yes. Suffering is normative. The Great Commission will not be completed without martyrs. There are no closed countries. That's a blasphemous idea totally unintelligible to the Apostle Paul. What in the world do we mean? You might be killed? Of course you might be killed. How else will the gospel spread? We wait until we won't be killed to spread the gospel? What kind of Christianity is that? What book does that come from? I mean, it's this asinine missiology. Well, me. here they are uh, you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on the prisoners and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property now stop right there be careful stop right there get the scene. In the early days of this church, they were mighty in their witness, and some of them immediately were jailed, and some were not jailed. The ones who were not jailed went underground for a few minutes, and they talked over, what should we do? Because if we go and visit them in the jail like Jesus said love does, they might throw us in jail. And then, what would our children do? And what about our property? And they said, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Let's go! And they went. That's what it means when it says, Sometimes you were partners with those so treated you had compassion on the prisoners. And what happened as they headed for the jail? According to the RSV, their goods were plundered. Other versions speak in language of more official confiscation. doesn't really matter. They lost their homes, their furniture. Their houses were on fire. They looked over their shoulder. They were throwing chairs out in the street, rocks through the windows, Big mob scene. And what was their emotional response? Tell me. Joy. This is a very strange kind of thing. Christians are strange people. There aren't many Christians around today, it seems like. In America, anyway. Don't know how it is here. In America, you touch my property, I'm not going to be happy. Get out of my face. I've got my rights. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, here comes the reason. Same as Matthew 5.12. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How can we not believe in the power of faith and future grace? I've got a possession, folks, called the presence of Jesus. And I would rather have that than anything in the world. Everything is rubbish compared to that. It is a better possession and an abiding one. And if I have that, then if that Lord calls me to this sacrificial service of love and it costs me, I can see. I don't know if you noticed this, but in those two adjectives, a better possession and an abiding one. I hear a psalm. Why don't you hear the same one I do? Better and abiding. Better and abiding. Anybody hear a psalm there? A verse? I hear Psalm 16:11. Thou dost show me the path of life. In Thy presence, there is how much joy? Fullness of joy and pleasures for better fullness and abiding forever. The presence of the Lord is what we're talking about here. Do you believe? Now the word believe is being
1: satisfied by.
0: Everything is rubbish compared to that. It is a better possession and an abiding one. And if I have that, then if that Lord calls me to this sacrificial
1: service of love and it costs me I can sing. I don't know if you noticed this, but in those two adjectives, a better possession
0: and an abiding one, I hear a psalm. Why don't you hear the same one I do? Better
1: and abiding. Better and abiding. Anybody hear a psalm there, a verse?
0: I hear Psalm sixteen eleven. Thou dost show me the path of life in thy presence
1: There is how much joy? Fullness of joy and pleasures for better fullness and abiding forever. The presence of the Lord is what we're talking about here. Do you believe? Now the word believe is being satisfied by. Are you
0: so satisfied? by the promise of the presence of the Lord Jesus when you die or when you suffer the loss of your property, that you can let goods and kindred go this mortal life
1: also joyfully. Until we can, we've not yet learned to live by faith in future grace. That was a loving thing for them to do. And they did it.
0: Verse 34 says, since they knew
1: that they had a better possession and an abiding one. That is, they had faith in future grace, and it released love. Look at chapter 11, verse 24, for another
0: illustration. These are so close in their construct of thought, I cannot but believe that if the writer to Hebrews were here tonight, I happen to think Barnabas wrote Hebrews. But that's a wild guess. I, I wrote a paper one time and argued for Barnabas. Nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. but uh, I, I named one of my sons Barnabas and I would like to think that he wrote a book in the Bible. But who, whoever it was, if he were standing right here, I think he would be saying to me, You got it! You got it! I mean, there's lots I don't get about Hebrews. <laughs> it's a hard book. But the the... The moral motive paradigm in, verses, in chapters 10, 11, and 12, I think I've got. Look at Moses here. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, now it's by faith, in future grace, because it's the assurance of things hoped for. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God a lot like these people that went to jail. Choosing rather to share your treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's a hedonist, but not a crass hedonist. He's a Christian hedonist. He's offered fleeting pleasures by sin. He says, no, thank you, I want real pleasure. Lasting pleasures. A better and an abiding treasure. So you can have your Egypt. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt.
1: Why? For he looked to the reward. There it is. Where do you get the strength to leave
0: Egypt behind, folks? America, Australia, call it what you will. Where do you get the strength to leave it behind? Embrace abuse
1: as wealth with joy. Answer? Answer? You look to the reward, called, in my vocabulary, future grace. It's the faith in future grace that severs Egypt. Just cuts the root of Egypt right out of your life. Egypt controls the church. Why is the church so controlled by Egypt? Driven by
0: materialism in love with their second and third houses and cars and toys and not about to let their sons or daughters, let alone themselves, be sacrificed on anybody's closed country. What is that? That's unbelief in future grace is what it is. It's never having fallen in love with and being satisfied with the reward. We are satisfied, thank you, with our retirement plan and with our good schools and our nice neighborhood, Anything that would jeopardize our security and our comfort cannot be the will of my loving Father who wants me to be
1: happy. Now, on Egypt's terms. The last illustration, and then I'm done, is one you all know in chapter 12, and it's the Lord Jesus. Let's read verses 1 and 2.
0: Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame
1: for the joy that was set before him. He did it by faith in future grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I long with all my heart to be like these people. And I know how fearful I become when I contemplate the kinds of sacrifices that Jesus called us
0: to make in order to be his disciples. And so I ask for very special grace
1: now and for every moment of our lives until we die that you would so satisfy us with the greatness of our reward, with the better and abiding possession, with the joy that is set before us, with the Christ who will be gained, that we can let goods and kindred go in the cause of love and holiness and a lifetime of faithful ministry. And thus, Lord, would you strengthen your people. In Jesus' name, I pray. Well, we've found some questions. We have the heart of questions. Yes. Yes. Well, you need to show me one of those texts in
0: Deuteronomy because uh, that's... That's the book that's thrown up, and nobody's been able to point me one, so you come to me afterwards and show me one of those texts. I don't think there are any there. I think what you're, what you're doing is very appropriately pointing out the dynamic of the backward glance enabling the future obedience. But the question is, how does it? How, what's, the, what's the psychological dynamic? What I did not do is read page 48 of Future Grace to show... How I see the interplay of gratitude i don 't know if this will help any, but for me gratitude I think gratitude in the bible is is always something for what God has done in the past, and so, when I look back at the glory of the exodus, as the Jews say, and i 'm filled that he brought me on eagle 's wings out of slavery and loved me that much, and i 'm overwhelmed with the grace of god 's acceptance of a recalcitrant people in Egypt. And He willingly preserved me in the wilderness. And the shirt didn't wear out on my back. And the shoes didn't wear out on my feet. And manna came from heaven. And quail came from nowhere. And water came out of the rock. What a
1: God! And as I turn now toward taking this land, what, what, what works? He says, come on, Caleb, Joshua... Go! I'll do it! And ten of them don't believe he can do it. And
0: two of them believe, of course he can do it! How? How do we know that? Look what kind of God he is. Look what kind of power he has. Look what kind of grace he showed. He will do it. But the power to enter the promised land was faith that he'd do it. Faith in future grace. I don't know that we're saying two different things, but I'm really stressing that it would be a mistake to turn toward the future and instead of trusting God's future grace to split the Jordan and defeat the enemies, I'm going in the power of gratitude somehow to do it myself. Oh, I'm so glad to get that straight. I, I, <laughs> now, give me the facts right now. Who, who, who are the bad guys and who are the good guys? Not Americans. So this 19-year-old was not American. All right. And we don't know which one he was. He might have been an Australian. Oh,
1: Scottish. I I would be terribly embarrassed if I get that wrong again. Yeah, I tried to give a little bit of
0: textual basis, last night. I've got two chapters on it in Future Grace in which I defend. I do not mean to define it exclusively as being satisfied with all that God. I'm saying that is an essential element. Now you're saying it's a necessary fruit. Is that a fair statement? It, 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 that's close. The reason is because when I, when I try to bore in experientially on the metaphors
1: depend, rely, trust, and leave out the component of
0: be satisfied by, I don't think they are adequate. I don't think they are genuine faith. Until, until if, if, if I say I'm supposed to lean on the promise of God,
1: depend on it, trust in it, rest in it, I mean, how can you say that and not say find it satisfied? Because if you say, "I lean on it, I depend on it, I trust in it," but it doesn't satisfy my soul I can't make that faith, which would be more biblical. Well, yeah,
0: that's whether that's, well, that's the ca- I've written three books to argue that we've missed massive categories of pleasure and delight and satisfaction. All Christian hedonism categories that, for generations, we've neglected to our great, great weakness in evangelicalism. You may be absolutely right that my pendulum is over here.
1: I, I think we better have another meeting for these two later to debate it. It'd be Thanks. Thanks, are there Are other questions? Yes. Hugh. Um, see is different. I, I think all of the
0: rewards I will ever receive are total grace. I don't think I'll ever earn a single thing from the Lord. Wow. You're a you're a classic covenant theologian then. And I I I don't I don't think it's possible to earn anything from the Lord because the only energy and effort that I have to offer him he supplies. Hebrews 13:21 may the Lord supply you with everything good, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight. So what I'm going to get rewards for is being pleasing in His sight, and He's the one who produces the pleasing, therefore it cannot earn. He owns the money. What do I have that I did not receive? And if I received it, how can I boast of that though it were not a gift?
1: I, I don't have any category in my theology whatsoever for earning anything from God.